0: You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting cityschurch.com. Well, church, you shall not murder. I uh, I want to just make sure that everyone heard the verse that Marshall just read. So if you could do me a favor, just, just raise your hand if you heard the Sixth Commandment here next to us. I just want to see a show of hands. You heard this Sixth Commandment good. You shall not murder is the sixth commandment here in Exodus 20, verse 13. And my guess is that none of us are are surprised by this commandment. There's nothing shocking here in this commandment. I think the sixth commandment might even be the most popular of all commandments. That's my my sense of things. Um, Some of you guys know Stephen Colbert years ago, I used to have uh, this satirical uh, like news show called The Colbert Report. And I used to watch it back in college. And there was this one season that he did this segment called, um, it's called Better Know a District. And so he would go all throughout the country and he would interview different congressmen to talk about the different districts that they represented. And uh, there was this one interview, this one episode where he's interviewing this congressman from the 8th District of Georgia. And this congressman had been a vocal advocate uh, for having the Ten Commandments on display in Congress. So he had co-sponsored a bill to have the Ten Commandments posted in the hall of the House of Representatives and also in the chamber of the Senate. And Colbert is asking him in this interview um, why he would you know, co-sponsor such a bill. And he went on to explain how how important the Ten Commandments are to America. And this congressman said that he feared that if we forget the Ten Commandments, our nation could lose its way. And then Colbert says back to him, can you name the Ten Commandments? This is a super witty question from Colbert. And the congressman is completely stumped. Like he... He doesn't know the Ten Commandments. He can't name the Ten Commandments, but he did get one of the Ten Commandments. And can, can you guess which of the Ten Commandments he knew? Yes, yeah, right. He knew that one. He knew the commandment, don't murder, you shall not murder. Everybody knows the commandment, you shall not murder. I think it's the most popular commandment. And we might also think it's the easiest commandment to obey. This is a commandment that we don't typically worry about, right? <laughs> we don't like keep ourselves up at night worrying about whether or not we're obeying the sixth commandment. But, but this morning, I would like for us to, to really slow down and to think deeply about this. Okay. Like In this moment together, more than ever before, our goal here is to really understand the will of God in the sixth commandment. And so I want to just pray one more time toward that end, asking the spirit to help us understand what God has for us here. So let's pray again, Father, amen to all that Marshall prayed. And again, in this moment, we ask that you would teach us. We need you to teach us. In your mercy, we humble ourselves. And we ask that you would send the helper and teach us, in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Here's the plan for the sermon. Um, I mainly just wanna look at the words here, okay? Uh, in, in our English Bibles, our English translations, it's just four words, you shall not murder, but in the Hebrew, it's just two words. Literally, it's no murder, and it goes that way for a few commandments there. And uh, we, we understand here the word no, it means don't do it, right? Just don't, just no, don't, don't do it. But what does the word murder mean? That's important. So what I want to do, I just, I just, the, the first thing here is just establish what does that word mean? What does murder mean? Okay, well, when it comes to the Hebrew word translated murder here in verse 13, there, there's, there's not actually an exact correlation in English. In fact, if, if you guys are familiar with the King James Version, the Hebrew word uh, is translated kill in the King James. So it's thou shalt not kill. That's the way I, I learned the, these commandments growing up. Um, but for us in English, we, we usually think differently about the words kill and murder. They, there's a bit of a different meaning between those words. Kill is a broader category and murder is, is a narrower category. Category. Okay. I'm going to try to explain how that works. Okay. Kill is a broader category. Murder as a narrower category. Here's an example. In James and the Giant Peach, his parents were killed by a rhinoceros that escaped from the London Zoo. In Shakespeare's Macbeth, Macbeth murdered King Duncan. Now, we could also say that macbeth killed duncan right but it's it's we're we're more it's more precise for us to say murder in that case although we would never say that the rhinoceros murdered james's parents see how it works We use kill and murder to mean different things. Kill is broad and murder is narrow. Well, when it comes to the Hebrew word in verse 13, it's sort of in between those two meanings. The Hebrew word means something narrower than the one word kill, but it means something broader than the one word murder. So here's the definition. I'm going to just try to state most basically what this Hebrew word for murder means. The word here in verse 13 is referring to the, the ending of life that is unlawful or forbidden, whether it is intentional or accidental. All right, the first part here, let's look at, look at this. The ending of life that is unlawful or forbidden. This is where the meaning is narrower than kill. The commandment is not to simply not kill in any kind of way whatsoever. And we know that because way before we get to Exodus 20, God has said that humans who murder other humans require the death penalty. This is way back in Genesis 9 verse 5. This is what God says. He says, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. So way back in Genesis 9, God establishes capital punishment. And we see this all throughout the rest of the Pentateuch. So so we know that God does not prohibit every kind of ending of life whatsoever. There are scenarios where there is the ending of life for the sake of public justice or lawful war, or necessary defense, and the Ten Commandments here are not talking about those things. Here in the Ten Commandments, in Exodus 20, verse 13, murder is referring to the ending of life that is unlawful and forbidden. But it doesn't matter whether it's intentional or accidental. There is such a thing as the ending of life that is unlawful, but also accidental. And the the best thing to do is just have examples. We need examples here. And we actually have an example, a good example in Deuteronomy chapter 19. Okay, So say you and your neighbor, um, you guys go into the forest and you're chopping some wood together. And all of a sudden, as you're, as you're swinging your axe, you, you bring it back and you go forward, and the head of your axe flies off and it hits your neighbor in the face and he dies. Okay? What do you call that? The Hebrew word in Deuteronomy 19 is the same word in Exodus 20. In that case, there has been a murder even though it was by accident. The neighbor should not have died. It was an unlawful and forbidden ending of life, even though it was by accident. The ending of life in that case is considered in the Bible to be murder, and it is prohibited in the sixth commandment. Now, for the sake of clarity, in English as a way to differentiate that kind of accidental murder we have this we have its its own word you guys know what the word is manslaughter right manslaughter is our English word that, 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 that talks about that differentiates that kind of accidental murder in our judicial system manslaughter is considered third degree murder it's still wrong It's still punishable, but it's not the same kind of wrong as first-degree murder, which is unlawful, intentional, and premeditated. And even within manslaughter, there are different categories. There's categories of voluntary and involuntary. And there are very precise conditions for how we understand the differences between those things. Like, how we think about these things is complex. And for what it's worth, it's all derived from the Bible, because what the Bible says here makes sense. These laws make sense. The sophistication of this ancient book is amazing, okay? It is the wisdom of God. And that's the first thing I just want us to establish here is what, what does this word murder mean? What is this word murder in the 10 commandments? What is God telling us not to do? God is telling us, do not end the life of someone unlawfully, even if by accident. And with that, we need to back up a minute and we need to think and talk a little bit more about the meaning of life, okay? Because if murder is most basically the ending of life, what exactly is life? This has to be foundational, right? And we probably all assume that we know what life is. But again, I want us just to slow down for a minute and think about this. What is life? Like, what is the reality behind our being alive right now? The most basic fact is that God gives life. None of us chose to be made God did that. That's what it means that God is the creator. Human life is God's idea. And we see right away in the Bible that sin, sin is mainly an attack on human life. God warned Adam in the garden that if he sins against God, on the day when you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely die. And that's the first time this concept, this this idea of death is introduced. Death is the removal of life. It's the antithesis of life. And by Genesis 3, because of Adam's sin, death became the reality in this world. And the death here, of course, is both physical and spiritual. There's physical and spiritual dimensions. Physically, human life can cease to function. Spiritually, our deadness means we are separated from fellowship with God. We can understand in the Bible, at the very beginning of Scripture, the problem of death. Death is the great curse of sin. And when you think about it, this is precisely what God's salvation is meant to remedy. God's whole design for redemption is to restore life first There is spiritual life that begins now by the new birth of the Holy Spirit, and then it continues forever. Then there's also physical life in the resurrection. God's people will physically live with him in glorified bodies in a new glorified world. So it's no reason why you see in the gospels, Jesus repeats this phrase, eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. The gospel is a counterattack on death, which is an attack on life. One way to say it is that the gospel is in defense of true life, restoring true life, abundant life, everlasting life, and it's it's God's idea, not ours. It's God's idea. Life is God's idea, not ours. God is the one who gives life. And we get it because right now in this moment, in this room, you can hear me. You are physically alive. You guys feel alive right now? Like take a deep breath and, and maybe, you know, do pinch yourself. Uh, uh, you, in this moment... In this moment, you are alive. And you are alive because God made you. He he made you alive. Years ago, I remember, I I read this story. I can't remember where I read this. I read this story about a man who was a a committed atheist. And uh, what happened is after the birth of his first child, as he would sit and hold her, he became overcome by the fact of her life. He, he would hold her, this living person, and he, he knew that she was here in his arms, there in his arms, not because she chose to be, but because of her mom and, and her dad. But then he knew that's not really the whole story. There's more to it. Mom and dad were apart. Of her being alive, but they didn't make her. They they didn't design her, didn't create her. And so this man, and he this is just his story. He's he he would hold his daughter and he would just look at her face. Some of you dads with little ones, just look at your child's face. He would look at his child's, his little girl's face and he would study her face. And he said that it was the intricacy of her ears that just made it click for him. That he he looked at her ears and he concluded, there has to be a God. And And this God is the creator of life. And then he opened the Bible. He opens the Bible and he meets this God. God is the author of life. God is in the life business, we could say. And it's one thing to acknowledge that all life comes from God, but then also we need to take another step and realize that life, which comes from God also has a purpose. And that purpose is also shown at the very beginning of Genesis. And it is so that God made man so that we would image him. Every human carries in themselves the image of God. We are not God but we are a reflection of God. God made us for the purpose of imaging him. We are the display of his majesty. We are God's artwork. And that is what affords us the wondrous dignity we have as men and women. God made us in his image. Now, you guys know, I I love a good sunrise, because I I feel like I talk about it all the time. Okay, let me know if it's too much. But I I I, I we I, my kids. You I've said this. I, this is a different angle, but I talk about every uh, five days a week. The kids and I we're driving east and early in the morning, and we're always driving at the perfect time for the sunrise. And uh, we we want to be. We've kind of we've just kind of our resolve is we want to be sunrise connoisseurs. Okay, we just want to. Just pay attention to it. We were driving a few days ago, early, early this, this past week. And uh, the the sun, it was, it was this amazing sun. And Elizabeth, my oldest daughter, she's like, that's a lemon sky, Dad. And it was, she named it, she named the sunrise lemon sky because it was more of a yellow sun as opposed to an orange. And it was this yellow that sort of radiated this like pastel fade into the blue sky background. And it, it was a lemon sky. It was a perfect, it was a perfect name for a lemon sky. So that's what we named that it was a lemon sky. And I've been thinking about these things and and uh, and, and these sunrises and, and what we're trying to do and, uh, and marveling at the goodness of God's creation, but I just want to get something clear in my heart. And I just want to get something clear with you guys because I do all this talk about sunrises. I just want to get this clear. It's that um, as amazing as that sunrise is, and it's amazing. What is more amazing though, is the human being sitting beside me also looking at the sunrise. Like we can marvel at the sky, and we do, we should. But then, here also, even better, beside me, there's a human life, a human life created by God, and she carries in her person. The fingerprints of his design, she has been fearfully and wonderfully made, knit together in her mother's womb, seven octillion atoms converging in one person with a heart that started beating at three weeks gestation and that beat an average of 54 million times before she was born. And then afterwards, that same heart, right now is beating and is set to beat 3.2 billion times throughout her lifetime. Her nose has the capacity to recognize a trillion different scents. Her eyes can distinguish up to 10 million different colors at one time. She has enough blood vessels inside of her to stretch around the equator of our planet four times. If we could unravel her DNA, it would read about 10 billion miles which is roughly the distance from earth to Pluto and back all that wonder right here beside me looking at the sunrise and that's just the life of the body she also has a soul and her soul is bigger then the universe because her soul is eternal god has put eternity into man's heart which means this human life besides beside me She feels the world around her. She steps into every space of God's world as a living part of it, breathing the air around her, thinking thoughts and speaking words. She has hopes and fears, likes and dislikes. She has dreams and ambitions and values. There are things that she delights in and hard things that she wants to avoid, but hard things that she was willing to endure for the sake of what she loves because love is the greatest of all her capacities because God made her to love him and to know his love. This creature of God beside me, this creature of God, this person who reflects the majesty of God, she will make make 35,000 choices a day for the rest of her life. And they are choices that God has ordained to affect things. God has given her that kind of agency because she is a human being, because she is alive. She bears the image of God. And when I look at her face, I see glory because God made her. God is the author of her life. She is human. She is a human life. And I can know with certainty that when God looks at her, he calls her precious, just like he does every human who has ever lived on the face of this earth. Every human life, every. Every human life is from God and for God. And therefore, every single human life is precious to God. You shall not murder. You see where this is coming from? Do do you see where the command is coming from? The sixth commandment is about horizontal relationships, right? Right? but it's mainly about God. The the negative commandment here, you shall not murder. If we were to say it in the positive, if we were to put this commandment in the positive, it simply means to honor life. The sixth commandment compels us to respect human life, which is from God and for God. This is about God. And when we understand this, when, when we obey the sixth commandment as a respecting of life, That God authors the application of our obedience expands into so many things. In fact, if we think, you get to think. This is think, think here. If we think about all the historical social problems of humanity, it's fundamentally due to a failure of respecting human life. The whole brokenness of our world, I think, could be summed up as a breaking of the Sixth Commandment. Just think about legislation for a minute. All good human legislation has most basically been a stand against the disrespect of human life, right? All good laws, every good law, most basically shares this one goal of respecting human life. And that goes for everything. That goes for everything, um, such as speed limits in your neighborhood, to the regulations from the FDA, to all the, the rehearsal, the safety rehearsals you have to do every time you get on an airplane. All of these things have this one thing in common. What they have in common is that your life matters and your life is worthy of protection. All good legislation has that in common. That's why we have law, it's for that. It's in harmony with the Sixth Commandment. Protecting life is necessary if you respect life. And although there are good laws that do this, there are also bad laws that don't do this, or there are no laws at all that leave humans vulnerable and helpless. And the history of our country is littered with such bad laws or lack of laws. And when an opening, when such an opening for injustice is allowed, murderers will flood into it. For at least 200 years in our country, those murderers were racist factions who murdered thousands of African Americans, in addition to subjecting them to all kinds of cruelty through race-based slavery and Jim Crow. In the present day, those murderers are abortionists who since 1973 have murdered over 62 million human lives. And in most of these cases, there has not been and is not retribution for these murders because they have wrongfully not been considered crimes. This is a moral outrage against our country. Moral outrage. We, c- we could even say that this past, now 20 years ago, 20th century, overall, the 20th century is really, has been characterized by the most atrocious disregard for human life in the history of the world. Even the most ancient pagan cultures never enabled the kind of horrors that were done at the hands of the most modern people in the 1900s, from lynchings to gas chambers to abortion. We have only, as the human race, gotten worse when it comes to obeying the sixth commandment. Jesus says in John 8, that Satan has been a, this is how I describe Satan. Satan has been a murderer from the beginning. And Satan, it seems, has had his way in recent history. The sixth commandment is you shall not murder, which means in the positive, respect human life. There's a lot more we could explore on this at the macro level, culturally, in society. But what I want to do here in closing is I want to just, I want to close with some personal application because I want us to take something home here. And this is is what I want us to think about now. How how do we obey this commandment? The the 10 commandments are moral demands on me. So then what does that mean for me? What does that mean for you? Okay, most of us hear this commandment you shall not murder. And most of us assume we're good, okay? In the narrow sense of the commandment, we don't think much about it. Don't murder, okay, got it. But we should think more about this commandment in the broader sense. The question is, in obedience to the sixth commandment, how do we respect human life? How do you respect human life? Three points of application. Number one, Number one, respect human life. Number one, employ the doctrine of carefulness. Now, the doctrine of carefulness, I'm getting this from theologian John Frame. It's implied in the Sixth Commandment. It's explained more in Old Testament case law, but basically it goes like this. If murder can be accidental... Then we should take all necessary precautions to prevent such accidents. Okay, so go back to the neighbor, the two neighbors in the woods uh, chopping some wood in Deuteronomy 19. Okay, the one guy's axe head flies off, hits the other guy, manslaughters the other guy. Now, although it was an accident, the guy who was swinging the axe should have made sure his axe head was secure before he swung it, right? The doctrine of carefulness says, hey, man, check your axe. That's what the doctrine of carefulness says. Before you go swinging your axe, check it. Make sure the axe head is secure or buckle your seatbelt. The doctrine of carefulness says, hey, don't text and drive. Beware of any kind of foolish risk that does not respect the preciousness of human life. And when we think about it that way, there are all kinds of implications here, including, including how much sleep you get. Do you respect human life and your sleep patterns or even things such as diet? Like if all you do is drink beer and eat cake, that's the sixth commandment problem, okay? (laughs) These are the kind of implications. Jesus actually, Matthew 5 he, he makes the connection between the sixth commandment and anger. This is what Jesus says in Matthew 5. He says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who was angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Now, Jesus is not saying here that anger is murder. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that anger is the powder keg from which murder occurs. And if you don't deal with your anger, you show a disrespect for human life because anger is on the continuum of murder. And if you persist in your anger, you are increasing your likelihood, your likelihood to murder. Does that make sense? It's to say, it's a traje- anger has a trajectory of murder. And if you don't reconcile with your brother, if you are, if you persist in your anger, your likelihood for murder increases. This is the doctrine of carefulness. It's why Jesus in this same passage, he goes on and he talks about not insulting your brother or sister. He goes on and talks about hasten for reconciliation. Don't stew in your anger because you might murder. See, this is the doctrine of carefulness. Respecting human life means caring for human life, for your life and for others. And that care for human life requires a carefulness, okay? So in obedience to the Sixth Commandment, employ the doctrine of carefulness. Number two, see people for who they truly are. Respecting human life is going to change the way you look at other people. It means you can't write anybody off. Because every single person you encounter is a human life created by God and therefore worthy of your honor. We should see everybody that way from our least favorite politician on TV to the guy holding a cardboard sign at the stoplight to the people who are sitting beside you right now who in just a few minutes, we're all gonna stand up and we're all gonna be dismissed and we're gonna be wandering around this space, this room, and it's going to be a room full of wonder because you're all alive. You're all made in the image of God. Oh, that we would see one another for who we truly are. C.S. Lewis says it best in the weight of glory. He says, quote, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal nations, cultures, arts, civilization. These are mortal and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals. It's immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. Next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. Oh, that we would see one another as who we truly are. And then thirdly here, how do we live in obedience to the sixth commandment? Number three, be cheerful in spirit. (laughs) Last week, Pastor David Mathis read from the Westminster Larger Catechism. The, the Larger Catechism is basically has is, has a great expo- uh, exposition of the Ten Commandments. It basically, for every commandment, it gives this comprehensive list of what obedience looks like, and it gives us a list of things that are called duties to practice, things we should do. Then there are sins to avoid, things we shouldn't do. And in Question One Thirty Five, uh, we find uh, th- this explanation of our duties, things we should do in obedience to the Sixth Commandment, and embedded. In that list, there's a little phrase. It's called cheerfulness of spirit. I love this. Um, The Catechism teaches. This is hundreds of years old. The Catechism teaches that obedience to the sixth commandment obliges us to be cheerful. And I get it. We understand why it's said. We this makes sense to us, right? If if we're going to really respect human life, we should be grateful for human life. And if we're grateful, if we're mainly thankful, it means that we can't perpetuate a kind of dismal, gloomy, sullen character because by God, you are alive. <laughs> he made you. Like right now, we're alive. And when we understand that, when we know that we're alive, we, we can't help but be thankful. At the bare minimum, we're thankful to be alive. And I mean that for you, like even right now, if everything seems to be falling apart around you, if if right now you're in a place and it feels like your world is falling apart, I want you to know that there is more glory in the fact of your existence than you can ever imagine. <laughs> you are alive. You are a human life created by God for God. And it doesn't matter how hard things are. Okay. I want you to hear this part. It does not matter how hard things are. It's good to be alive. You feel that? It's good to be alive. You are a survivor. You made it here. Right now, if you're here, you made it here alive. Right now, in this moment, your, your, your heart is beating. Your mind is thinking. Your emotions are filling. We are alive. We don't deserve to be alive. I don't deserve to be alive. It's because of God. It's because God has made us, God has kept us. And and therefore, the, the, the sheer fact, it's the sheer fact that we are here, that we are living beings, that we're human. The sheer fact that we're humans is enough that we should be cheerful. We should be cheerful, but there's more. Because if you trust in Jesus, if you are united to Jesus by faith, you are alive right now and you will never die. Because Jesus says to us in the Gospel of John, He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. How much more, then, for us as Christians, how much more should we be cheerful? Because we're not just alive, we're doubly alive. And we're going to live forever. We're going to live forever. So you shall not murder. Respect human life. Be cheerful. Give God thanks. Give him thanks, which is what we do at this table As we come to the table, we remember that the reason that we live is because Jesus died for us. Jesus suffered the wrath of God that we deserve. By his blood, Jesus paid our debt. He paid the debt that we could not afford. He was for us, crucified, dead, and buried. And then on the third day, Jesus was raised from the dead. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And in his resurrection life, out of his resurrection life, he has given us a life that will never end. You have life that will last forever if you believe him. And so in this moment, If you trust in Jesus, we invite you to this table. Come eat and drink with us and let's give Jesus thanks with cheerfulness of spirit. His body is the true bread. Let us serve you.